one of the assistant pastors here, so you don't have to listen to me every week. Brent's the, Brent's the guy, but every once in a while he needs a break. But at the same time, he blesses some of the leadership of the church and gives us the privilege and the responsibility of being under God's word with you guys. And, and what, a, what a privilege it is. Um, let's pray before we get into this. And there's so much here, Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's the, the light, the light in the path for us, Lord, that we can find all truth in your word, Lord. And we pray that you would speak to us here this morning, Lord, and give us more of that truth. And uh, whether it, we need to be rebuked, um, corrected, or encouraged, Lord, we just desire to hear from you. So speak to us here this morning through your word, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 10, um, this is a quote from an unknown source, but it's so, I found it so true today. 50 years ago, parents were apt to have a lot of kids, but nowadays kids are apt to have a lot of parents. It's a, and this is a, I mean, you might laugh. But it's true today, right? And it's a, this is a touchy section of scripture, but it's, uh, it's God's truth. So uh, there may not be too much joking around in this message, but ultimately it's all about finding the joy of serving the Lord wholeheartedly. That's what everything is in scripture. Even some of these supposed hard sections of scripture. And, you know, finding a way to live our lives fully devoted to Jesus Christ because that's the blessed life, we're told. So needless to say, marriage is a, it's a covenant that's created and designed by God, and he takes it really seriously. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 22, it says, sorry, I don't have the scriptures here, but if you're quick with your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 says, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's pretty big stuff. So now keeping everything in context, we, we need to remember uh, the city that Paul was speaking about, and, and you've heard about it uh, through Brent and, and this uh, study through Corinthians. But, and the people that he was writing to here were in the church in Corinth. And as we have heard, Corinth was an urban center that was filled with, with all of the depravities of most urban centers, but in particular it was known for its temple for the goddess Diana. And much of the worship of this goddess was centered around sexual practices and sexual immorality, not unlike our society today. If you've ever opened up social media or flicked on the TV, it seems like everything in the news, everything in the media, everything in entertainment of all sorts is about sex, gender, or preference. Everywhere. And our laws and our land pertaining to these issues are reaching further and further down into the younger children that we have and teaching them that all of this focus on their sexuality is okay 
that it's important. And this focus on their sexuality is a big part of who they are. And some of the thoughts and the beliefs promoted out there are that it is precisely who you are and the center of who you are. And now don't get me wrong, because our, our sexuality is a part of a part of who we are, of course. But we see as we go through Scripture here that it's far from being the center of who we are. And the focus put on it that's so prevalent in our world today, which is just another tool of the enemy. Anything to get the focus of people off of the condition of their spirit and off of looking into your eternal thoughts and onto the state of status of their bodies and their sexuality and their life right here, right now. This is what it's all about. And as my wife says many times, and, and she uses this to minister to, to women on the streets, she says, don't you know that your worth and who you are goes so much higher than your sexuality? Your spirit, the core of you, and the connection to God, the priceless value of you. And as we go through the scripture that Paul has written here, we need to remember what Paul's trying to do in all of these scenarios and in, in these all these different statuses of relationship that he's re- expressing here in these chapters, which are the unmarried, or what he calls the virgins, and, and also with the married and with the divorced. He's simply trying to address these situations and and each relationship every relationship with the instructions from god and suggestions from him to get people back to the place of being able to serve the lord unhindered that's what it's all about sometimes we we get our focus off of things it's all about how can i serve the lord more unhindered and joyfully and that's it that's what he's trying to accomplish that's what god's trying to teach us that our relationship with him is the ultimate goal and our love for one another is a reflection of that relationship and some of these relationships like marriage are they're designed to remove the hindrances from serving god and to build character and qualities into people to better serve god marriage i believe especially as christians we we need to remember that everything in scripture if you just bring it back to Jesus and how can I serve him better then you'll understand what he's trying what they're trying to stay say from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation marriage I believe is one of the greatest tools that God has given humans to grow in the image of Jesus from my own experience too and that's that is if it's used that way and not used to only fulfill our own desires every marriage that we have here today and online And in the world is a small picture of the great marriage to come. The marriage supper of the the Lamb or the bride, the church, us, is married and connected forever in a covenant with the Son, the bridegroom, and, and our Savior God, Jesus. We're all little pictures of that. And our marriage represented here are no less a picture of this coming marriage in heaven than any of the other pictures or types that we see in Scripture. And those types and pictures in Scripture, none of us would argue, are powerful and they're true and they've stayed intact and they teach us how to draw closer to Christ. So, as I say that, is every Christian marriage 
the same? They're small pictures of our grand union with Jesus and a testimony to the whole world. That's what we are in our married life. We're, we're a testimony to the world so that the world might believe and be saved. And an even greater testimony to the world when a man and woman overcome hurdles in their marriage for the sake of Christ and for a, a better testimony for him. All the incredible difficulties surrounding personalities and preferences and finances and sexuality and, and self, selflessness and selfishness and sins against one another. When brought before the Lord and selflessly resolved, what a great testimony. Where it can be said only by the grace of God. And I testify to that today. Me and my wife are together today and I love her more than, more than the day I met her. Only by the grace of God, if you only knew our story. What a picture, what a testimony. Now, is every Christian marriage, as I say this, is it starting to look a little bit more important? A little more important eternally than our own agendas and our own desires. So just like the, it's just like the old Jewish weddings when the groom would be ready and finally go to get his bride. And what did Jesus say in, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting at verse 3? He said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And that is what this is all about. Eternal life. That's what marriage is all about, being with Jesus. That's ultimately what everything that we're going to look through here this morning is all about. Even though it may at times be difficult to see until we see Jesus face to face, and then it will all make sense. Because the other details of this life that keep us from having our eyes fixed on Jesus and growing in his image... When will they seem, at the time when we see him face to face, man, they, they will seem so pitiful and so selfish and, and just like a vapor. And we'll see. He gave me this person as my spouse to point me to Jesus and to mold me. And he knew exactly who I needed. I wasn't sure at the time who I needed. It was like, oh my goodness, this is too soon, Lord. But he knew exactly who I needed. And sadly, some people miss that. But they can find forgiveness. With God, there's forgiveness and mercy and love and grace. God can begin molding again at any point in someone's life. And I say this to help us to see Paul's intentions in these verses here. These believers in, in Corinth, they may have seen so much sexual depravity in Corinth, that they may even think that any sexual behavior, even within marriage, was wrong or not, not suggested by Paul, so that they could focus better on serving the Lord, even in marriage. And we know from reading at the beginning of this chapter that, that the church had sent some kind of a letter to Paul with questions surrounding marriage and divorce and sexuality, because Paul says, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, and he responds to it here in this letter. And maybe they asked Paul different questions like, should I stay with my wife? Should I stay with my husband? Should I abstain from sexual relationships? What should I do, Paul? And on and on, the different questions they would ask him. And at the beginning of the chapter, he let them know. He said, yes, it's good to be single like me, but not everyone has this gift. 
And he calls all these callings, whether you're married or single, he calls them gifts, the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. And then he basically says, if you can't stay single because of your need for more intimate relations, then get married so that you aren't struggling with lusts of all different sort. And this is to get the distraction of the need for physical intimacy out of the way so that they can serve the Lord together more effectively. And the Lord will teach the single person too how to be selfless and love others through community and in different areas of service and other relationships. And then he'll teach the married people to be selfless and love others primarily through one another. And of course, through their circle of influence too. So speaking about commitment, marriage and divorce, if someone chooses to marry, Paul addresses a question that he must have received from them about the, the commitment to marriage. And if, if there's any condition in which a husband or wife can divorce, divorce their spouse, and he addresses it pretty clearly. There's not really much to go through, really. We, got, we can just read these scriptures and go, okay, let's go home. But let me read the first couple of verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11 says, Now to the married... I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried to be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Paul is talking here about two Christians that are married, though. And let's look at the clear instructions from God in these two Christians that they would have from the Lord. There's clear instructions in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, which Brent alluded to last week. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. And these commands as Paul says, are from the Lord. This is why the word of God is so, so important. I always say the first thing that someone needs to be instructed to do after they become a Christian and after they've repented from their sins and they've asked forgiveness from Jesus and they've made him the Lord of their life, the very next thing is what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this book? How are you going to take it? Are you going to take the whole thing or parts of it or what are you going to do? Are you going to believe it from the beginning of Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation 22 as the complete inerrant word of God? Then if so, if you follow it, it has the ability to solve and carry you through every single challenge in life and bring you to the blessed life and ultimately to paradise with our Lord. And if I'm troubled in my marriage and it's an, an awful and destructive situation... Yet God says, don't leave, die to yourself. I can either try and find happiness as a Christian, I can either try to find happiness, joy, and peace through leaving, or find it through the molding and changing of myself that God is telling me is the best way. And the way to a truly blessed life, even though it may not seem at the time, painful in the journey, but oh, oh, <laughs> I'll say oh third time. Oh, so worth it. 
But God does give allowances for, for honestly abusive situations. He says to be apart, to be separate. And it's okay to try and find reconciliation or grow. But then he says, if you can't find reconciliation, pray for the gift of singleness if it's God's will for you. There's different steps that he takes, different kind of this is best then, well, this is the next best, and this is... So we can determine what relationship status is Paul is talking about in each of these cases here in chapter 7 just by looking at how, how he directly addresses certain relationship statuses. And then really by the process of elimination, we can see in this case, he is talking about Christians, two Christians that get married, because he, he will talk about after this, unequally yoked marriages between believers and unbelievers. But also Paul makes it clear that what he's going to say is from the Lord. There are circumstances that he only advises and gives judgment on, on his own thoughts. It says he's not, this isn't from the Lord, but it's still good advice. It's still ended up in the word of God. And we can see by how he addresses each situation, married Christians, married believer with an unbeliever, unmarried virgins who have never married or unmarried because of an unbelieving leaving a spouse or a, or a spouse maybe dying in each circumstance his main driving point as i said is to be in a relationship that you can better serve the lord or stay faithful to the lord and that's it everything it's about drawing closer to jesus then later in the chapter, he says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, at the end of the chapter, he says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. That sounds pretty drastic. And obviously, he doesn't mean to leave your wife or your husband, but he's making a really strong point. He's saying, care for the things of the Lord. Please the Lord. Use your marriage status to please the Lord. You know, the, some of these stats are staggering. There was 2.74 million divorces in Canada in 2021. And it, it's, we're a country of less than 40 million people. But we're actually doing, actually in the whole scope of the world, we're, we're doing not too bad. Canada has about a 35% divorce rate and US has over 50, 53%. And Russia is the worst, 65% divorce rate. Right. Many times the effects of divorce on children that, that are in that family, they're swept under the rug. Not all the time, but many times they are. Listen to, to this. It's taken from a, a Christian article, a Christian magazine. It says, baby boomers were four times more likely than their parents to live together outside of marriage and four times as likely to get divorced. Almost half of the children of divorces enter adulthood as either worried or underachieving or self-deprecating and sometimes angry young men and women. That's from a psychologist named Judith Wallerstein. And there was a recent survey in, a, in, in a Sweden. A Swedish woman showed couples who lived together before married had nearly an 80% higher divorce rate than those who did not. And they're living together to see if they can make it. And I guess they decided, yeah, and there's an 80% rate of divorce. So if Paul says that the whole point of any of this relationship is better to serve and draw closer to the Lord, then that drawing closer to Jesus or attending church, say, 
or being active in your life as a Christian, being a staunch Christian, someone who's a Bible-believing person who really follows the Lord, that's a critical stat to look at in every marriage, which is it's a key and an important stat when we're looking at the divorce rates in the world. Because people who do polls, they typically may ask if you're a Christian, what your religious affiliation is, if you're a Christian, if you're a Muslim or a non-religious person, but they aren't specific with their questions. They don't ask questions like, if you're a Christian, are you a committed one? Are you a church-going, born-again follower of Jesus Christ? Are you grounded in his word? Are you in his word regularly, if not daily? Because another study quotes a couple of American university studies that actually says that with committed, that with this kind of committed church-going Christians, the divorce rate is actually plummets down to about 35% less, the divorce rate. This doctor named Dr. George Crane, clinical columnist in the newspapers throughout North America, he's calculated that when a married couple are active together in the same church, they have about a 50 times greater chance of avoiding divorce. And that only one in 500 marriages breaks up, he puts it this way, where there is a family altar. The whole family worships together under the word of God in the same church. That's an unbelievable stat. Only one in 500 marriages divorce. So anyways, the point is, once again, the point is it's all about Jesus. And God, through his word, is clear. Put Jesus abiding in him and serving your fellow believers, which is your spouse. Put it number one in your life. Whatever it takes, die to yourself. So in verse 10, the word is it's pretty straightforward. Christian wives don't depart from your husbands, and Christian husbands don't divorce your wives. It's a command from the Lord, and only with only two concessions or allowances. One of them is right here in this chapter. If an unbelieving spouse leaves you, leaves the believer. And as we know, in, in Matthew chapter 19, right from the mouth of Jesus, it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So God gives those two conditions that he will understand and allow divorce and allow a person to remarry. If the unbeliever leaves the believer, and if one spouse is involved in extramarital fornication or sexual immorality, or as we know too, that would include like heavy abuses of sorts, physical violence. But it's also clear in all of those cases, every case that God allows the divorce or departing from the offended spouse, but his clear desire is always, it's always this, that they stay unmarried or reconciled to one another if possible. And you can also take from this that the Lord understands the, the damage that can take place in a relationship from these kind of offenses or any, any offense, like I said, like various types of abuse or, or verbal abuse or emotional or financial or, or physical abuse. The Lord knows. And in these cases, he understands the two being apart for a time, separation for healing or, or resolution to occur, for forgiveness or repentance to occur for, for a Christian couple, which you can see is also about the two learning to draw closer to the Lord. And then the desire is again for reconciliation and coming together again 
But if that can't happen, then he says, stay unmarried and solely devoted, devoted to the Lord if he gives you that gift. And this is with, like I said, married Christians. But there's no getting away from it. <laughs> there's just no getting away from it. God does not want divorce of any sort if, that, if it's possible, of any kind. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 says, But did he not take them, make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And many people feel that, that divorce is, is the only recourse for their, for their marriage situation. And, and they don't seriously look at it. Is the Lord desiring to mold me or teach me to die to self? Teaching me to let go of my own selfish desires and my own dreams and my own aspirations and to love someone despite their faults? And to let go of some of those aspirations possibly of my own? Is, is this really the way to a blessed life that, that we're all looking for but maybe looking down the wrong road that seems right for me apart from this person? All sexual sin and, and sins of all sort prior to marriage and in marriage will filter into the marriage. Even though you can find forgiveness, there's no question. It all filters into that relationship. It, and if, it'll affect that marriage. Forgiveness and healing, like I say, can be found, but the emotional turbulence that's caused by sin will still find its way into that relationship. And the only way through it is to die to self, to allow the Lord to circumcise areas of your heart, however painful it may be, and let him deal with your spouse on his own terms, to pray for one another, and, the, and when possible, to pray with one another. The question to be asked before taking that dive into divorce are, have I done everything I can? Have I died to self? Am I willing to grow? Have I responded to everything the Lord is asking of me. But my spouse won't, and they want to leave. And then Paul says in verse 11, then let them go. But he tells the spouse who won't stay and work it out to stay unmarried if possible, or be reconciled. And he gives only those two options, like I said, for Christians. And as I said, we saw that in Matthew chapter 19, but it's also in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 and Mark chapter 10, that fornication... An adulterous situation is, is one area that even Jesus allows divorce to occur, but if possible, reconciliation. And let it be known that the, the healing process can be long and it can be difficult. The forgiveness may occur, but trust, trust, it's a process that can take years to occur. The repentant spouse, the one who's at fault, needs to give the offended spouse as many years as it takes and be willing to be completely transparent in all ways. A truly repentant person has nothing to hide. But other than fornication, Paul gives no other allowance. And then Paul addresses a believer who is married to an unbeliever here. And their question might be, am I defiling Christ if I'm joined to an unbeliever? Should I then divorce them? They may have asked this with really holy intentions, wanting to do the right thing in this can occur in, in many ways. Many 
maybe that they were married and, and one gets saved, or maybe a Christian marries an unbeliever, which is already going against God's plan for them. And you can see Paul says that this is his, his own advice, but he's, he's not quoting it from Jesus, but it's still the word of God. In verses 12 through 16, he says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in, in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? It's just, it's... <laughs> This is so much how God desires that people stay married. He doesn't want divorce in any case. Unbelievers, stay with your unbelieving spouse. So we see that the opposite happens here than what the Corinthians might be thinking. Like I said, they, they might be wondering if they're defiled being with a married person who being made one with an unbeliever. But Paul says the opposite. He says, no, actually the unbeliever is sanctified through their union with you. Have you, you've heard the, the, the phrase before, maybe you haven't, how many Christians does it take to make a Christian home? And the answer is one. Because whoever else lives there may not be a Christian, but the whole household, Paul is saying, is blessed by the Christian just being there. Now it's not saying that the unbeliever is saved or automatic, automatically becomes a Christian, but all of the blessing that's received by a child of God from their father in that home is obviously blessing the unbeliever also because they're, they're one in marriage. And the opportunity for that unbeliever to come to Christ is multiplied many, many times. And the same thing goes for children here also. The same root Greek word here is used for sanctified and, and holy. There's not time uh, for me here to go on speaking about the magnitude of, of this blessing, just having one Christian in a family, but... You should look at some of the stats and some of the research and the testimonies of the influence of how one Christian has affected so many people in their families. So Paul says, stay with them. My wife and, our, my wife and I, Cindy, we're both, we're, we're kind of a blend of all this. My wife and I were both coming to Christ around the same time, coming out of the world. And it was a, a back and forth thing. We influenced each other at, at times in our growth together. The Lord would draw me, but then I would drift away, and Cindy would influence me back on track, and it was kind of give and take. And it's, it's really amazing how the Lord will use our marriage and, and any marriage relationship to draw us to him. And Cindy, have I, Cindy and I, as I've said before, we've gone through so many situations over the years that, that caused people to divorce, half a dozen of them. But we always went back to our own corners and the Lord would deal with us individually and we would all ultimately always come back together even, even through some of the most difficult situations in life. And I'm so grateful for how God has used my wife to draw me to him. Oh my goodness. I would not be here today. Definitely not be here today. I'm fully convinced uh, if it wasn't for her. But this is, it's, it's the other circumstance that Paul allows divorce. If the unbeliever will not stay, then the believer isn't stuck with that. Paul calls it bondage. 
And that believer is free. He's free to remarry. They aren't under the bond. And he says in verse 16, don't think that their, their only chance for salvation is through you. So you've got to force them to stay. No, God calls us to peace. We have a big God. He says, let, let him take care of their salvation. And before I carry on with these next verses, though, um, coming out of the marriage of Christians, let me say, if you're troubled in your marriage, whatever the situation, please, please seek biblical Christian counseling. Biblical Christian counseling. God wants to heal and grow you in that marriage. I know he does. There's no question of it. And that is definite. There's no question that he is able to take something that seems so broken and so impossible and make it into something new, new and beautiful. With God, nothing is impossible. That's a for sure. And then Paul carries on with something that can seem like a, a, it seems like a changed topic here, but it's so pertinent. And it can be a real relief for many people who have heard these previous words here. And it shows the grace and the mercy of God and the truth that each day is a new day with new mercies. And it's important to finish well and not to look back in the past when serving the Lord. Those people that think, what should I do now? I've already been divorced. Or I've already remarried. I've done all of that Paul says don't do. Or we've gone through adultery and I'm, and I'm single and I'm happy. Or I'm divorced and I'm still single. Or I'm widowed. Or whatever the situation is for you. He says in verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So the, the general principle or, or, or quick take on these next verses is to serve the Lord and abide in him no matter what the capacity or the state you are in. You can be married or single or free or in prison or rich or poor or healthy or sick. Serving the Lord is determined from the inside condition, not the outside condition. God is telling them that they can serve the Lord in whatever situation that they're in right now. Also, don't feel like you need to change your status again to serve the Lord because you messed up in the first place. So I need to change it and go back? No, he says, serve him now in this state. And if your status changes, then continue serving him. Repent if the sins of the past are there and move forward serving the Lord faithfully. Learn from your failures. That's what he means by so let him walk. It's to say your history in the past isn't as important as it is to walk with the Lord right now. And Paul uses this circumstance as a, as a picture to them. In verse 18 he says, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So circumcision, it's not really the, the issue directly here. It is an issue for them at the time, but Paul's using circumcision as, just as a, to give an example that nothing in our life or our social status is the issue, but our abiding in Christ is the issue. Now, this is really interesting here because circumcision was a huge status, like I said, of the day. The chosen people, people of God, as you know, were circumcised and the Gentiles weren't. And it separated them not only by religious beliefs, but by social status also. To the Jew, the uncircumcised person was a pagan dog. 
lower than even some of the animals, and they couldn't even step foot in an uncircumcised home. So Paul is addressing their social issue here also, saying, stop focusing on this, telling these believers that it doesn't matter what the circumcision status is of anyone. What matters is obedience to God and abiding in Jesus. So the same goes for our, our modern Christian church here. We aren't starting a social revolution trying to usher in Christian values by, by fighting against the government or the laws of our land in the same manner that unbelievers do. But sure, we can disagree and not adhere to ungodly rules and laws and vote for Christian leaders. But if anything, the fight that needs to be taking place is the battle inside for the souls of people. And like I say, men must change before kingdoms can change. If laws change for the better, but people are still evil, what good does that do? And if laws change for the better because godly people change them, then we're succeeding because the inside battle is winning. And we will see this, we will see it, and I'm looking forward to it in the millennium. And these last verses here, may not seem relatable, but they once again pertain to any of these statuses in life, our jobs, our financial status. Verse 21 says, we were, oh yeah, we, I go, we, we were, we, you called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves to men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So have you heard those people who say, because I, I used to have friends like this, who say, if I could only make a bunch of money, then I'd serve the Lord. I'll, I gotta make millions and then I'll build Christian churches and Christian orphanages and Christian hospitals. But God doesn't want you to ever have the attitude that we could better serve him if the conditions of our life were different. Look at the conditions that Paul lived. His life, for the most part, he was poor and at times sick and beaten and in prison and there was no comforts of home. And did he do well serving the Lord? I think so. And how about the apostles? A bunch of fishermen with nothing, yet their message changed the world. It was their faith and their constant abiding and allegiance to Jesus that made the difference not their bank account and their social and political status or their marriage status. So let each remain in the state in which they were called and serve the Lord wholeheartedly and not being a slave to men. But as verse 22 implies, we are free to be slaves to Christ. And Paul kind of sums it all. All of these verses that we looked at today when he was writing to the church in Galatia. Galatia chapter 3 verse 28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. So as, as most of this portion of scripture pertains to married Christians, let me just say to end here. If you are a married and you are a Christian, the Lord says, don't divorce. And he doesn't say that because he wants you to suffer. He says it because he loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And he will freely let you leave because of marital unfaithfulness or an unbelieving spouse wanting to leave. But God wants to do a work in your marriage and he can do a work in your marriage if you let him. And there's no questioning. He does not want you to divorce. There may be a lot of character building that he wants to do in you, 
And don't look at your spouse. Let God deal with your spouse. And he wants you to look He wants you to look at you and to be willing to let him circumcise your heart and mold you. If you divorce, you may be missing out on on some of the greatest experiences that God has in store for you, changing you into the image of his son. But if you've already divorced and are single or, or remarried, then find forgiveness from the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly in the status that you're in right now. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your word. It's so, people say it's so hard-hitting, but it's just, it's so truthful. It's just, you just tell it the way it is, Lord. And you desire to mold and change us. Lord, so I pray for the married people here and online, Lord, that you would bless their marriages, Lord, and, and have them grow and, and thrive together and give forgiveness to one another and grow in the image of Jesus together. Lord, I pray for people that are separated right now that you help them to find, to become healthy, spiritually healthy, and and to find reconciliation, Lord. And I pray for those who are divorced here, Lord, that they would find your mercy and your grace and that they would serve you in the status that they're in right now in their life, Lord, and that they would serve you wholeheartedly. And that goes for all of us, Lord. So we thank you for your word, Lord. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.